Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Just this week, another two Democratic candidates announced their intentions to run for president in 2020. Ohio Representative Tim Ryan and California Rep Eric Swalwell. While Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado says he's all but certain to throw his hat in the ring. If you haven't heard of them, well, you're not alone. Why would these three candidates with almost no name recognition join a race already saturated with Washington insiders? Part of the reason is the current crop of frontrunners, or wannabe frontrunners, don't look invincible. The first quarter fundraising results for the candidates were decent, but not eye-popping. One of the early frontrunners, Senator Bernie Sanders, Hi. raised $18.2 million in the first quarter. It's impressive, but not much more than the $15 million he raised in his first full fundraising quarter of 2015. That was back when he was an obscure senator from Vermont and a long-shot candidate for the nomination. The other frontrunner is not formally in the race. That, of course, is former Vice President Joe Biden. Biden may be leading in the polls, but the last few weeks have provided a preview of the uncharted waters in which he'll be forced to swim. No one knows if he'll be able to stay afloat or if he'll be sucked down by the undertow. Meanwhile, on February 1st, the start of Black History Month, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker announced he was running for president. I believe that we can build a country where no one is forgotten, no one is left behind. Since then, he's been on the campaign trail and announced he raised $5 million in the first quarter. This weekend, he makes his official hometown kickoff of his Justice for All tour in Newark and then heads immediately to Iowa. And this week, I got a chance to sit down and talk with him. Now, for pretty much all of his career, Booker has been considered a rising star and running for president a foregone conclusion. I wondered if he saw it the same way. You know, I I don't. And I've had a very unusual pathway even to the United States Senate. Uh, I think the uh, Wall Street Journal reported there's only been 21 Americans in the history of our country that have ever gone from being directly from being a mayor to being a United States senator. My trajectory in life has been going to uh, try to take on some of the toughest problems in our country, often in places that usually people were saying you should avoid. I moved into the central ward of Newark, New Jersey in my 20s as a law student and began organizing people, trying to bring people together to take down slumlords. And we saw a lot of success in those early years. And then we took on City Hall uh, because we believed our city could do a lot better. And we took on some of the toughest problems in America of running a city that had been nationally known for crime and corruption and a decline, 60 years of losing population, losing tax base, and took over the city during its worst economic period in 60 years uh, with the Great Recession, which for inner cities is a Great Depression. And what we were able to pull off, and I really emphasize we, because it wasn't me, we made uncommon coalitions that produced the uncommon results. We pulled together 
uh, people to pull turn Newark's really trajectory around, to make it a city that's growing for the first time in 60 years, that's economic base is growing dramatically, as building our first new hotels in decades, the first new office towers in decades, supermarkets in food deserts for the first time in decades, and a school system that now, according to Washington University, is ranked the number one school system in America for low-income kids having high poverty, high success rates. But then even in Washington, at a time of the heightened cynicism, heightened uh, worry about that you can't get things done, the biggest major bipartisan bill that got through Washington under this president was a bill that I helped lead for criminal justice reform on a very issue that my pollsters, when I was campaigning for Senate, told me not to campaign on because it wasn't one of the highest issues uh, that was ranking for New Jersey voters. And I said very clearly, I'm going to talk about this issue all over the state because leaders don't uh, follow consensus, they mold consensus. And in a nation that has one out of every three incarcerated women on the planet Earth, we are belying the truth of who we are, of being a nation uh, of, of freedom and liberty and justice for all. And yet, you know, the path that you took, especially as mayor, you worked with a lot of organizations, industries, whether it's the financial services industry or Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, you had relationship with folks working on the charter school movement, including Betsy DeVos. Those those relationships are now, at least within a Democratic Party, considered toxic. So can you help us understand you, you built these relationships, you built up, as you pointed out, the city of Newark using these communities, and now you're saying... Well, I'm not supporting, you didn't support Betsy DeVos for education secretary. You're not taking corporate PAC money. You've sort of stepped away from taking money from industries that you once were taking political contributions from. Can you help us understand that? Well, I, I don't think there's anything to understand. And, and some of that is, is unfortunately uh, falling into the trap of uh, folks who are, are exaggerating elements. Uh, Betsy DeVos was not a partner of mine in things in the city of Newark. And uh, in fact, a lot of the things uh, that she was doing in her career were things I was speaking out and fighting out against. And so that's unfortunate uh, that you include that in that litany. But I will tell you this, when you are trying to get jobs in your city, when you're trying to build the first hotel in 40 years, or like we did with Teacher's Village to build uh, teacher housing in our city and new schools, which was a $130 million project, and you have a city that can't get capital, that nobody's investing in, you definitely create relationships with uh, people that can invest institutional capital in your city for the first time. Because my neighbors on my block, I'm the only person running in this election that lives in a low-income community, black and brown community, we, we don't have time for purity tests. We, we need jobs in our community. We need economic opportunity. When you live in communities like mine, you deal with a sense of urgency. And sometimes the ideological debates or purity doesn't really fit with the needs of low-income communities who need jobs, educational opportunities, resources, alleviations from environmental toxins like lead in their water pipes. You need to get things done. Before we move on, I just want to go back uh, to one moment to the to the school system in in Newark and your relationship now, these years later, with teachers and uh, the teachers' unions in the state and nationally. How has that relationship developed and where do you think it is today? 
Well, understand that when I ran for Senate, I got the endorsement of our state's largest teachers union twice. The legislation I've worked on in the Senate, uh, I'm really proud of, has been in coordination with teachers because teachers are, are savagely underpaid in America. And so the legislation I've pushed and, and led in the Senate to relieve the debt of our teachers who have carry unconscionably high college debt, uh, to uh, have tax treatment for our teachers, uh, which we live in this country that's outrageous, where you could work at a hedge fund and you pay less percentage of your income in taxes than a teacher does. Uh, I've been leading legislation to try to change those that kind of uh, that kind of tax treatment. So I've actually enjoyed, as a United States senator, tremendous support from teachers unions and teachers who understand that my agenda continues to be about creating excellent public schools for all of our children. And then on the campaign trail, presidential campaign trail, I'm psyched to see lots of teachers coming out endorsing me because I'm out there fighting not only for teacher salary increases, teacher debt forgiveness, but also for our country to do what we say we're going to do. The Department of Education was founded for equity and inclusion, and we do not even pay our share of special needs education, uh, which if I'm president, I'm going to change that to make sure that one of the most important streams of income coming from the federal government is fully paid so that schools have the resources not only to help special needs kids, but have the resources therefore freed up to help all children. Not only are you a former mayor, but you are one of five current or former mayors now in this race, and you are one of six senators in the race. I'm wondering, you know, given how unpopular Washington is and how much attention the only current mayor in the race, Pete Buttigieg, is getting, in part because he's seen as somebody who's outside of Washington, he's a fresh voice, he's not part of this dysfunctional Washington swamp. I'm wondering, would you rather be running as Mayor Booker? rather than Senator Booker? Well, I would rather be running as Cory Booker, as a guy who, the only guy in this race who actually was a mayor, and actually I was more mayor more years than I've been a senator, that was able to show a case of taking on one of our most challenged cities and creating massive new opportunities in education, in healthcare, and economic development. And I've been a senator. This is a pretty unique resume in this field, someone who knows Washington, knows how to get things done there, and who knows the urgencies that chief executive faces to every single day get up and get things done for people. Let's talk about you for a minute and your your style, both of campaigning and just it seems like your personality in general, this very effusive guy. You can't read a profile about Cory Booker. I'm, this is quoting from a New York Magazine profile of you. They describe you as someone who talks about love and kindness and compassion and empathy all the time. America's a physical manifestation of a larger conspiracy of love. You like to talk about that. And I could see a lot of folks hearing this, and I, and I talk to some of these folks now who say, that's nice and all, but man, Donald Trump is going to take that message, spit it out, and just destroy Cory Booker. And didn't Democrats already try this in 2016? Hillary Clinton ran on a message, we're stronger together. Michelle Obama told Democrats, when they go low, we go high. And that didn't really work out. Love is one of the toughest, most durable forces ever. And when, you know, Bull Connor was being challenged and we beat him, and civil rights activists beat him, it wasn't by bringing bigger dogs and more powerful hoses. They shifted the moral imagination of a country through powerful nonviolent protests. And we make a real mistake right now. Uh, I ran a fire department. Fighting fire with fire is, is really not a good strategy for putting out fires. Donald Trump wants us 
to fight on his terms. And I think that's a recipe for losing the election and losing a mandate to lead all of America. I think this is an election where we need to see leaders who are going to call us to our higher angels, not talk about what they're against, but really stand for what we're for as a nation. Yes, we need a revival of civic grace. Yes, we need a more compassionate empathy. We are tearing each other apart as a country, and we need leaders that are not going to pit us against each other. We need leaders that are going to call us to a common purpose and a common cause again, because when I travel this country, uh, I find so much common pain. So I think the best strategy to beat Donald Trump is not to do it, not to fight this election on his terms. I don't know if anybody emerged through tougher politics than I did and won, not by contorting myself to hate my opponents, uh, but by calling to the larger community that we've got to come together, get rid of a politics of, 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 of takedown politics that pits American against American. Earlier this week, Senator Booker filed legislation to, quote, form a commission for the study of reparations proposals for African-Americans. Can, can I tell you why I'm frustrated uh, and disappointed by this reparation conversation? It's because it's being reduced to just a, a box to check mm-hmm. on a presidential list. His bill is the Senate companion to H.R. 40, a bill which has been introduced and reintroduced in the House since 1989. I never thought that a bill to study a, a, a really important issue like writing economic wrongs would uh, cause controversy. The reality is we live in a nation where we have seen savage injustices. You know, in in a city like Boston, the average wealth of a white family is about $280,000. The average wealth of a black family is about $8. And these things didn't happen by accident. We, We have seen really into your and my lifetime, overtly bigoted laws, redlining, mortgage policies, programs that were designed to lift our country out of, uh, uh, open up pathways in our country to the middle class, from the GI Bill to Social Security being designed in ways to exclude or undermine African Americans' pathways uh, into the middle class. Uh, and this isn't just hurt uh, black Americans, it hurts all Americans. You know, I live in a city in Newark where uh, redlining and all of these other practices, or mass incarceration, for example, which has profoundly racial uh, um, impact in our nation, where we have a nation that there's no difference between blacks or whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, but African Americans are between 3.5 and four times more likely to be arrested for those things. Those things actually create real economic harm, not just to African Americans, but to our country as a whole. We have a nation that I think Villanova did a study that showed we'd have 20% less poverty in America if our incarceration rates were the same as our industrial peers. We have got to find a way to have our country truly be about equality and do things and policies that actually balance the economic scales. Now, I I look forward to us studying this issue and having a, a national conversation, in fact, about our history, a lot of which we sometimes just try to cover over dark chapters that weren't that long ago that still have an impact now. But let me just say this. I'm not waiting. I have a bill for baby bonds that says that every child born in this country should get a a, a savings account and a deposit in that account. And this is something that can be paid for just by reversing elements of Donald Trump's tax cuts that gave wealth to the uh, trillions of dollars of wealth uh, to the wealthiest amongst us. That if every child got a, a, a deposit of $1,000 at birth and then the contributions made into that account, upwards of $2,000 for the lowest income kids, depending on your family's income, by the time that the poorest kids in America are 18 years old, 
um, uh, they'd have upwards of $50,000 to invest in things actually that create generational wealth, starting a business, buying a home, going to college. And one of the benefits of that bill, the way I designed it, is it not only will help every kid get a fair shot and equity, a stake in our economy, but it virtually, as Columbia University says, eliminates the racial wealth gap. There are things we can do in our nation that address the persistent inequalities that were born out of overtly racist policies. And having a commission to study these issues, to find solutions to make us more fair and more equal, doesn't just address past injustices for African Americans. It actually helps our entire country be more successful. And it's bringing the country along on this. I I just was pointing out to you earlier this Pew poll, but let me read it to you. The U.S. has not gone far enough in giving blacks equal rights with whites. And 78% of black Americans say, I agree with that statement. And only 37% of white voters agree with that statement. Look, I I have to tell you, I'm, I'm the child of civil rights parents. People forget that when Martin Luther King died, 60% of America disapproved of him. I went to Newark, New Jersey in the inner city, not because it was the popular thing to do, but I joined with people who were fighting outrageous injustices in the community. This is not about polls. We we have a country where people are hurting. Farm suicides are at uh, rates that we haven't seen since the Depression. Uh, We treat mental health issues in this country with jail and prison. We, We have a nation where millions of children find it more easy to get unleaded gasoline than unleaded water with over 3,000 jurisdictions where children have more than twice the blood levels, lead levels of Flint, Michigan. Now, our media doesn't cover so many of these issues, but it doesn't mean that we don't need leaders that are standing up and talking about the injustices, even if it's uncomfortable to say those things, even if it makes you unpopular to say those things. And so I'm running for president, not just for the election at the end. I don't think you can campaign wrong and then think you can govern right. I have an opportunity now over the next year to try to affect the national conversation. And so I'm going to talk about things that may not be popular, like the bill to study the ideals of reparations, to talk about lead and water, talk about farmer suicides and why corporate consolidation is is making the independent family farms disappear. There are too many people in this country who are losing faith. You want to talk about polls? Look at how many many millennials now are losing faith in our democracy, losing faith in capitalism, because our systems are no longer working as they should. And so I'm going to not pay attention to polls. I'm going to spend the next year, hopefully two years of my life, talking to the hearts and, and as well as the heads of every American who was willing to listen because I know we can do better. I know that we can create a beloved community. I know we can go from uh, uh, sort of saccharine calls for it to be a tolerant society to the deep uh, nurturing ideals of creating a beloved society that is there for all of its children that can have our country lead again, not on uh, child poverty amongst industrial nations, not on infant mortality amongst industrial nations, not on the most expensive health healthcare system, yet with the worst outcomes of any industrial nation, but that we can lead again to make this nation the most nurturing soil uh, for not just dreams and, and, and goals for our children, but the ultimate practical success of all of our uh, nation's families. Senator Booker, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Uh, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much. And you've been talking to us about reparations. My name's Robert Smith. I live in Arlington, Mass. Native American Indians have to be part of reparations or 
it's just just not right. Hi, this is Colette from Bear, Delaware. I am totally against reparations. And if we were to give reparations, I believe they should be given to the ancestors of the Union soldiers who died, were maimed, and suffered psychological damage trying to free the slaves. I think it's a very, very backward way of looking at things. Do you remember affirmative action? Was that not a reparation? I'm calling from Palmer, Alaska. As far as reparations go, I don't have a problem with this, but it is interesting to think about. My ancestors fought and died to eliminate slavery. So do they need to pay reparations? Yes, hi, I'm Cynthia, San Diego. And I believe, uh, yes, absolutely, reparations should be paid, no question. My name is Ari, and I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I think that any reparations should uh, go to to the economy and to make sure that people have equal access to money and education throughout their lives so that we won't end up with a screwed-up system 20 years from now, even if we give reparations to individual people. I think when we uh, talk about reparations, we will never be able to be equal, so what we need to do is free tuition through four years of post-secondary and zero interest financing for homes, properties, and businesses. Thank you. This is Dylan in Indiana. Lots of mixed opinions there. Now, reparations has become somewhat of a litmus test for Democratic presidential candidates. I propose a $100 billion plan of reparations. If it means just a cash payment or a check to families, I would not support that. What I do find challenging is the best way to do that, how to ensure that it's fair. People aren't starting out on the same base. We have got to give people the, a lift up. But in order to understand reparations, we have to talk about context, about history, and to look critically at why we're having this conversation now. So I invited someone you know very well to the show, my takeaway colleague, Tanzina Vega. Amy! Hello! What's happening? Tanzina has spent the majority of her career reporting on race inequality, and last week on the show, she convened a roundtable of expert guests to discuss reparations. After our hellos and a bit of small talk, I asked her to respond to a clip from my conversation with Cory Booker. I never thought that a bill to study a really important issue like writing economic wrongs would cause controversy. The reality is we live in a nation where we have seen savage injustices. You know, in in a city like Boston, the average wealth of a white family is about $280,000. The average wealth of a black family is about $8. So I think what Cory Booker is, you know, what, whether his ambitions with this new bill are solely political or not, the issue that he's pointing out is essentially a national issue. It's not just in Boston. Those figures are as extreme across the country, at least at the median. We know that white families have at least 13 times the wealth that black families have, uh, at least 11 times the wealth that Latino families have. And when we dig even further, a couple of years ago, I, I was in touch with the St. Louis Fed. And when you look at the highest earners in this country, the top 1% in the United States, 95% of the 1% are white. So what Booker is pointing out is the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap that essentially stems from slavery. This bill that Cory Booker has introduced in the Senate is set up to explore 
the idea of reparations, not to actually mandate reparations. But it seems that even having a conversation about what this would mean and what this would look like sets off alarm bells for a lot of people. But it goes directly to this question. How on earth can we unwind our economic situation in this country to make an economic reparation to people's whose descendants were enslaved. Right. And we and, and so there's two sides to that coin, right? We know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the wealth gap in this country. And that's not right. the income gap. It's a lot of folks need to make the distinction between how much I make and how much money I actually have as wealth. And that is really what we're talking about here. When we look at how long it would take to close this gap, we're talking more than 250 years for black families to catch up to the average wealth that a white family has. That was the impact, the economic impact impact of slavery in the United States. So let's flip that, okay? If it's going to take us that long to to close this gap, let's take a look at why the alarm bells are going off in the first place. Is part of this idea that, well, as a white person, uh, for example, there are a lot of white Americans who say, I didn't you know, own slaves. That's, That's right. That my family. My family had nothing to do with that, right. right? We were against it. We were abolitionists, whatever. That's fine. But I think we got a lot of clarity around why that message is actually an inaccurate one. And it's it's also ahistorical. Let's take a listen to what the Professor Catherine Frankie from Columbia University had to say about that. White people have been the beneficiaries of white supremacy in all aspects of our lives, even if we or our ancestors never owned slaves, just as I would say black people have been burdened by a badge of inferiority that attached to that concept of white supremacy, whether they had ancestors who were enslaved or not. And I think, Amy, just to, to, to wrap up there, what Catherine is, is really getting at is that it goes beyond a check. This is something that has to be a moral imperative here beyond whether or not your descendants own slaves. White Americans have benefited from that economic model. But you are asking, and this is an interesting point that Catherine brought up, it goes beyond asking uh, white Americans to say, yes, there may be an economic argument here to be made. But what she is asking, what you are also highlighting, is the fact that it will also require white people in the country to say that we live in a country, or we're going to have to be honest about the issue of white supremacy. Right. And 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 we have to be honest about and, and that's a phrase that I think turns a lot of people also it, right. it sets off a lot of alarm bells, but let's look at what that phrase means. Slavery essentially was not just an abomination and, and for humanity, but it was a financial imperative that this country was founded on, right? So black slaves were used to create the industry that we have in this country. So to suggest that, and, and, and let's also go beyond slavery, right? Slavery in many ways was extended even after slavery ended. We see the legacy of Jim Crow. So the the idea that black Americans in particular uh, are completely unscathed after slavery is, is totally off base. And, it, and it's also ahistorical. And yet I asked Senator Booker about this too. There's a new Pew poll out looking at the legacy of slavery. And here's a question from that survey. Do do you agree with this statement or not? The U.S. has not gone far enough in giving blacks equal rights with whites. And 78 percent of blacks who answered the survey said yes. Among whites, it was just 37 percent. So is that the bigger question then? How can we have a conversation about reparations if we're starting at a place 
like this about equality. I, I spoke to Maxine Crump, who is a descendant of people who were enslaved. She brings up this idea of who is really even American. I think that those who are fighting against this change is because they're going with the common narrative that black people are somehow something that isn't fully American, which was the way that the narrative was formed to say these are not quite fully human. They're, they're supposed to be mastered. They don't know how to uh, run their own lives. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things there is really something that even when we're having a discussion about the word racist, right, there's a lot of people who say it's almost worse to be called a racist than to do something racist, right? And that's where we have the issue. There is a lack of understanding or a lack of willingness to really understand the full impact of what slavery was, which was brutal and inhumane, um, and the long-lasting economic, social, uh, and other impacts that that has had in addition to American policy that's really created a second-class citizenry um, among black Americans and non-white Americans. What did your panel think about the reason that this issue, specifically the issue of economic reparations, as Senator Booker and others are talking about now on the campaign trail, has come into the political lexicon this year? You know, Professor Frankie spoke to that very thing. Let's take a listen. These deep wounds in the U.S. culture have been festering for a very long time, and then suddenly it seems like they get traction. And I think in some ways the fact that this take, it's gotten traction now is a symptom or an effect of the Trump administration, where we see racism in its rawest form, unhindered by any kind of attempt to, to blunt it. And I think it makes this discussion that much more pressing and one that we just can't turn away from anymore. What I think is happening is that this is a conversation that was once fringe that's now become mainstream. Part of that has to do with social media. Part of that has to do with the fact that I think, you know, back when Bernie Sanders was was running his last run for president, he sort of bungled uh, the response to the question about reparations. Um, And we're talking a lot more about just economic inequality in the United States. And so when you talk about economic inequality, you can't ignore the numbers that, again, that we set out at the top of the segment, right? And and this is really the foundation of that economic inequality. And of course, Amy, as you know, there's an election coming up and there are candidates that are going to be pressed on their social justice issues. We've seen this already. They are going to have to come up with an answer to this. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. I hope that those candidates who have expressed interest in this uh, will do so beyond the 2020 campaign, whether they win or lose, but that remains to be seen. Tanzina, it was great to talk with you. Thank you for having me, Amy. Coming up, state lawmakers are proposing bills written sometimes word for word by special interest groups. What we did is we found the copied text. For example, if you took a bill and you copied substantial amounts of like sentences or sentence fragments from that text, our algorithm would find it. We'll explore it all next on Politics with Amy Walter. Hi, everybody. We need your help if you like this podcast. Make sure you subscribe if you're not already getting us every day and tell your friends. Plus, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us in a big way and it helps other people find us. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. 
and we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter. Now, you probably know how a bill becomes a law. Maybe you studied it in school, or if you were of a certain age, you probably learned it through this Saturday morning cartoon. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long But more and more, journey. bills are being written not by lawmakers, but by outside interests, business and industry groups, liberal and conservative activist organizations. We always kind of knew this was happening, but now we actually have the numbers. According to an investigation conducted by USA Today, the Arizona Republic, and the Center for Public Integrity, over the past eight years, state lawmakers have introduced about 10,000 bills that were pretty much exact copies of bills written by special interest groups. And more than 2,000 of those bills have been signed into law. Rob O'Dell, a reporter at the Arizona Republic, helped create the algorithm that led to this discovery, and he says these numbers are just the tip of the iceberg. What we did is we found the copied text. For example, if you took a bill and you copied substantial amounts of like sentences or sentence fragments from that text, our algorithm would find it. If you just took the idea and wrote your own bill, it wouldn't find it. So, like, we are only talking about a small subset of what we could prove was directly taken or copied. The effect is certainly much larger. Give us a couple of examples of bills that really stood out to you. Certainly one that we talk about in the story, this bill about is called asbestos transparency. And you would think asbestos transparency would be about how victims could get help or how victims could have been exposed. But really, it was a bill written by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a conservative lobbying group. And what it did was put roadblocks in the way of people who are sick from getting help. A lot of those sick people have a finite time that they're going to live. And once they die, the death benefit for their loved ones is much lower than if they would have been able to sue the company when they were living. The one I wanted to also raise with you, because the president actually mentioned this one, was something called the right to try bill. Some bills, they don't have a good name. Okay, they really don't. But this is such a great name. From the first day I heard it, it's so perfect. Right to try. Which sounds, again, really nice, that if you're a terminally ill patient, you can have access to all sorts of medicines that uh, might help you, even though they haven't been approved by the FDA. But what you all found out was that it wasn't simply that this was just to help terminally ill patients with treatments, but that there was actually an industry behind this that was going to get a benefit from these bills. Exactly. So Right to Try is basically the most successful model bill, I I think, in history. We found that the name and the concept was conceived by Cancer Treatment Centers of America in conjunction with the Goldwater Institute, which is a conservative uh, think tank here in Arizona. They had even focus group tested the name, 
And, you know, they said in our story that their goal was to get this passed in as many states as possible so then they could put pressure on the, on the federal government to pass it as well. So this made it in 41 different states and then was passed by Congress and signed by the president. The other thing you all found was that of those 10,000 bills that state lawmakers introduced that were copies of model legislation, most of them were written by industry groups. Conservative groups came in second, and then liberal groups came in third. What should we take from that? And what does this mean for just regular people? Why should they care? I mean, I think the reason that people should care is you elect people to go to bat for you, go to work for you. And if they're taking bills that were written by somebody else in some other state, those interests could be different than yours. It's not so much the fact that model legislation is bad, but the question is, is like, who is behind it and why are they doing this? What we found was conservative groups were just more effective at doing this. For example, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, they have turned this into a lobby. It's a social network. It's access to donors. And that effect sort of snowballs. And you get laws that go farther than liberal bills because for a lot of the liberal groups, they just put these bills out online for people to take. And of course, there's a third side industry, which is basically pushing industry goals and things that they're interested on. The other thing I was uh, that was really interesting in your piece was how surprised many legislators were that they had actually signed on to copycat legislation. Yeah, uh, we interviewed the person who showed up the most in our database. He's a Republican from Pennsylvania from the Philadelphia suburbs. He was shocked to hear that he had signed on to this many models. What he said he did was, I guess, in the Pennsylvania State House, they submit memos and just say, hey, can you sign on to my bill? My bill does this. He signed on to 72 different bills, and only one of them, he was a primary sponsor, that ran the gamut. Liberal model bills, conservative industry model bills. He signed on to one of the asbestos bills. And when we talked to him about some of them, he said, well, I don't support that, even though he signed on to it. The question it raised for us was, if your legislator does not know that he's signing on to bills, how are you, a member of the public, supposed to know? And we did interview more than 50 legislators who had signed on. About half of them said, yeah, I knew it was model legislation. Another 40-ish percent said, I know I got it from somewhere. I don't know exactly where. And then there was a smaller group that you know, insisted that they had written the whole thing. Is there, as you were going through this process and watched how this works, do you have any ideas about how to make it work better? Do you think there is some sort of solution to this issue of bills that are basically being copied all throughout the country and that people who live in those communities don't know anything about? First, sunlight is often the best disinfectant, so we're going to continue to do this. We also wrote a little bit about a proposal where people would have to declare whether they got their legislation from an outside source, which I think if you could implement that would be effective. I don't know that that's something that politicians would implement willingly. Right. They would have to basically tell on themselves. Exactly. And I don't know a lot of politicians that like to tell on themselves. (laughs) Right. Rob O'Dell, this was a fascinating investigation. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for coming and talking with us. Thank you very much. Rob O'Dell is a reporter at the Arizona Republic. 
we decided to get another perspective on legislation written by special interest groups by speaking to someone who has some firsthand experience in writing it. My name is Allison Anderman. I'm senior counsel for Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Giffords Law Center is the nonprofit arm of Giffords, a pro-gun control group. One of Anderman's responsibilities is to provide legal advice to the lobbying arm of that organization. And we spoke about how the lobbying process works in practice. Groups like my organization may approach a representative and say, look, there's a gap in the laws of your state. Would you be open to working with us on some legislation? The legislator may say, yes, I'm going to write up a bill and then I would love to get your feedback on it. Or the legislator may say, can you draft something for me? And then we can work on it together and talk, but you do the first draft. Sometimes a legislator will say, do you have a model law on this topic? If so, can I look at it to get a better sense of the policy? And then we can work on a bill together. Do you think that the people, once you go into a, you're in a state, you're working with these legislators, maybe you're using model legislation that has passed in other states. Do you think that the other legislators who may be co-sponsoring it or may be voting for it understand that this is something that you were a part of? So first, just to clarify a little bit about what a model law is and how we use model laws, Mm -hmm. my organization drafts model laws on a handful of policies. So we work on gun violence prevention bills in dozens of areas. We have model legislation for about five or six or seven policies. And those tend to be the policies that are the most nuanced. And the reason that we have drafted a model is to help legislators understand the nuances of these types of laws. However, we never, ever hand a model law to a legislator and say, adopt this. A model law is meant to be and should only be used as a starting point for a conversation about the policy. To answer the other part of your question, do I think that other co-sponsors know what's in the bill? I can tell you that in my own work, I have been to sessions where I have met with not just the sponsor, but several of the co-sponsors. We do not hide the ball on our involvement. If anything, we promote our involvement in this legislation because we are the experts in this field and we want the public to feel confident that we are helping these legislators draft these complicated policies that it would take them many years to really fully understand the nuances of. How many other groups are you seeing that are hiding the ball, as you said, whether it's on an issue that you're obviously very close to right now on gun violence, or if you're in the legislative sphere and you're watching other pieces of legislation that are going through a process where it's pretty clear that folks don't quite understand how heavily involved outside organizations are. I do think that the corporate gun lobby often obscures their involvement in legislation. They are behind much of, if not all, the legislation that weaken our gun laws in this country. But you don't hear so much about their involvement or their true motives. So, for example, one of their signature pieces of legislation in the last five to 10 years has been allowing people to carry guns in public without a background check and without a permit or a license. 
The gun lobby has deemed this bill constitutional carry under the misguided notion that the Second Amendment allows anybody to carry a gun in public, regardless of how dangerous they are, regardless of their criminal convictions. It's not accurate, and it is really an attempt to get more people to carry guns so they sell more guns. And I do not think that their involvement and their motives is transparent to the public, possibly to many of the legislators who sponsor this legislation, but also possibly not. Would you change the way legislation is getting drafted these days? Gosh, I mean, that's just such a difficult question. Yes, I would change so much about the way laws are written in general. And I think one thing I would love is for there to be more time. It's one thing to pass a law, but it has to be effectively implemented for it to work. So we need to ensure that we are taking our time to talk to every stakeholder that will be involved in implementing this law. I have found that often we don't have that time. And that is partially why the model law is so useful, because we have spent years drafting and refining these model policies through conversations with stakeholders such as law enforcement, the courts, advocacy groups, industry occasionally. And we have thought about every angle and all of the potential pitfalls from legal issues to implementation to getting the word out among community members. And so we are not drafting this quickly in a back room, and it gives us a very helpful way to start the conversation with a legislator on this policy. Finally, do you have a number you can share on how many bills you, through the Giffords Law Center, have been able to be a part of that have passed in different states? Well, we have been working on legislation in states and local communities for almost 26 years. And we have been involved in drafting policies, I would say, on hundreds of bills that have been passed around the country. Alison Anderman, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Thank you very much for having me. Alison Anderman is senior counsel for Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. In response to Anderman's comments about what she calls the, quote, corporate gun lobby, we reached out to the Second Amendment Foundation and to the NRA. The Second Amendment Foundation told us, quote, the gun prohibition lobby falsely claims that gun manufacturers are in the driver's seat when it comes to lobbying for gun rights. The fight for constitutional carry is led by grassroots activist gun owners on a state level. And from the NRA, who says, quote, we're proud of our success in championing legislation like constitutional carry because it recognizes the rights of law-abiding people to defend themselves in the manner they see fit. You can read these responses in full on our website. We started the show today talking about the presidential race. Here's my take on where things are right now. The 2020 field keeps growing and shows no signs of slowing down. Trying to keep track of all those names and to figure out where each one fits in the overall Democratic nomination process, well, that's a challenge. So here's how I'm trying to make sense of it at this point. Right now, I see the field divided between two groups of candidates, ones that I call the revolutionaries and the other that I call the restorers. 
The revolutionary candidates are a pretty small group. It's basically Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. These are the folks who want to see big, fundamental change to our country's major institutions. These are the disruptors in the field. The restoration candidates argue that the country is tired of the disruption and the drama and are hungry for a return to normalcy or balance. I would put Cory Booker into this category. He would like to see change happen in the country, but one that leads with empathy and unity. At this point, it seems likely that the contest will eventually whittle down to a showdown between these two choices. The only question is how many will be in each category. Is there room for two disruptors? Will the restorers consolidate behind one candidate? For now, however, we'll just have to wait and see how these candidates perform on the campaign trail. So you got to do me two favors this weekend. First, if you love Politics with Amy Walter, go subscribe to our podcast. And if you're already doing that, tell a friend or even an enemy. They need to listen, too. We need your help spreading the love. And second, go subscribe to the Takeaway Daily podcast as well. Tanzina Vega takes you through the stories you need to be paying attention to every Monday through Thursday. You can find all of that at thetakeaway.org. And of course, send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next week. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.